Welcome to another day of Lost in Twin Peaks. Today we discuss the scenes in Season 1, Episode 6, that revolve around the Lara story. So going through the scenes, but not in chronological order, organizing them by that, that narrative aspect. Let's look at the scenes in this episode, divided up by subplot. For the Lara story in The Murder, we're going to move the Log Lady Vision subplot here, because at this point it just dovetails pretty neatly with that. We start off with Cooper, Harry, Andy, and Doc Hayward examining Jacques' depart, uh, apartment, where they figure out his blood type. Harry talks to Hawk over a walkie-talkie as the scene opens. There's sort of an establishing shot, and we hear him saying, Hawk, get over here. It's kind of an odd moment. I think it's to set the scene so people would know where they were supposed to be, because they're just sort of bumping around in this apartment somewhere. Later on... Uh, Cooper, Harry, Hawk, and Doc Hayward are still out and about, and they approach the log lady's cabin uh, out in the woods. And there's a funny moment here where Michael Horse, what, the actor who plays Hawk, saw a bent over twig, and he just like crouched down and sort of played with it tenderly and looked at it very intently and pointed like it meant something significant and everyone had like not to tried not to laugh because it was so well done like he you know he's sort of poking fun at this whole idea of him as this great tracker in the uh, log lady's cabin where they're welcomed by the log lady uh, i guess if welcomed is the right word they come with you know they're all pulling guns and she's not at all phased and says you know you're late or whatever and she has them come in inside there's uh well as we're go as we're like uh watching them walk in we get a quick view out the window and i just love there's like this great little set there it almost looks like a diorama like an old school hollywood soundstage thing they got sort of a painted backdrop and some little prop trees and a bit of grass and you'll miss it if you just look at it at a glance which you're supposed to but it's kind of charming if you like look at it for longer too it goes back to that sort of disneyland feel i always talk about she says to them you're two days late but that's your concern and they're generally bemused but respectful and this is where we kind of see their attitude towards her. And Doc Hayward says it was the day after the wedding, wasn't it, Margaret, when she talks about her husband dying in a fire? And this is a reminder of the character Miss Havisham in Great Expectations, the book we see in the beginning open uh, or uh, on uh, Cooper's desk, which is a favorite of Mark Frost. And, uh, you know, so that's a sort of a nice little touch there. So in this scene, you know, Cooper uh, wants to head on. He says, "I, uh, you know, I think we're all right, miss. And they're like, no, just come on, go along with the flow. So they all go in, they sit around having tea with her. And finally, she tells them what happened that night of the murder. She she recites this whole sort of litany in a sort of poetic manner uh, through the log. Like Cooper has to lean forward and ask the log. He has to kind of learn to overcome that hesitation there and address it directly. But he keeps looking up at the log lady and uh, then she tells them what they or it or she saw. So from there, Cooper, Harry, Hawk, and Doc approach Jacques' cabin, and we hear Into the Night playing in the background over these shots of a crow and its eye and everything. It's a very striking scene. This is the first Julie Cruz song we've heard since the pilot. That's also off her album Floating Into the Night, which was written by David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti and released, uh, I believe, a year before Twin Peaks. And uh, it's very evocative. And it's great. I love how they use it in the daytime, you know, that it's not too obvious, but there's just something like ethereal about it. There's something about hearing it in the afternoon, but it's still, as they go into the woods, trekking into the woods, it evokes something there. I think Leslie Linka Glatter asked to use it um, 
you know, she thought she loved that music from the opening. She's like, we, can we use that here? There's supposed to be music playing. Maybe it could be that. So they all get to this cabin. They go right in, and the record is playing on repeat. So nobody's there. As they look around, they make the discoveries that I already described, the new evidence. There's a great sense in this scene that all that dutiful police work buried in files and baggies of evidence uh, in the formal environment of the police station is now paying off. Uh, with some help from the dream, of course. The dream is becoming a reality, but the forensics is becoming reality, too. We're reminded of what both of those kind of systems of knowledge actually signify. You know, there's something about just seeing all this information kind of laid out in this abstract way and then seeing the actual scene of the crime that it's all referring back to. It's kind of a useful, I don't know if the right term is phenomenology, but, it, you know, my understanding of that concept, this, this kind of ties in with that. Moving on, other Laura stories, there's the Palmer family. It almost feels more appropriate at this point to call it Leland's Crack Up. Uh, Sarah is not in this episode, and really since episode one, we've only seen uh, one scene that was more focused on Sarah than Leland. Every time we're seeing something, it's usually Leland having a breakdown. So uh, yeah, Leland's Crack Up, maybe we should call it. Leland arrives in Ben's office in the middle of the brothers talking about something and they're not happy to see him. They've got all these investors in town and that's why he's there. He wants to help out, but he's, he's hopeless. And they're just like, you know, follow doctor's orders. You need some rest. They're trying to close the door. So nobody sees him in there. They view him as an embarrassment. And uh, later on, we see Leland again at the great Northern. He showed up in an attempt to dress for the occasion. Like his clothes are all disheveled and he's got a little, uh, a piece of tissue on his face like he cut himself shaving and he runs his hands through his hair and kind of wanders in just lost in this party it's a great moment and there's this weird musical cue that plays as he enters it's kind of like a, it's like a very lynchian sound which is interesting because he wasn't actually on this episode at this party eventually somebody starts playing music in the middle of jerry's speech we never really find out who put it on there's all kinds of theories about that but uh, for now, it just uh, starts without, with it, you know, it's, we don't know why. And it's sort of a big band song, which is what we've seen Leland dancing to so far. So he starts dancing, groaning, and he's got his hands over his eyes. And it's just like, it's, it's a pathetic, hard, horrible scene. And everybody's looking at him aghast. They don't know what to make of this. Ben enters with Catherine right as this is going on and go, go dance with him, pushes him off now. And so she starts dancing and imitating his hand moves and everyone figures it's just this fun dance. So they all start doing, you know, the Leland, as you could call it. They come out and dance and they're having a great time and laughing. And we're kind of encouraged to laugh at the absurdity of it all. But then we also see Audrey crying as she watches it. And that kind of introduces another emotional color into the scene and the recognition that, yeah, this is actually pretty tragic. There's a plot element here. Uh, to, to Leland's story as it develops. It started off as just sort of these one-off scenes of him acting wacky, but now it's creating complications for Ben. So Frost is finding ways to put everything together into kind of a narrative sense, not just these standalone scenes, but they kind of contribute to other characters in some way. And then finally, I, I actually was wrong. We do hear Sarah in this episode. We don't see her, but we hear her calling down to Leland when Maddie is sneaking around the house. So it just feels like this like haunted house, you know, this so the trauma of Laura has settled very heavily on there. We can see how that impacts Maddie at times. You know, she says stuff like that when she's meeting with with uh, James and Donna. For Laura's relationship to Bobby, we have Jacoby 
taking Bobby aside. The whole family's there for therapy, but he wants to speak to Bobby alone. And he starts needling him. What happened the first time you and Laura made love? And Bobby, of course, is very offended. It's really the first thing to break through because up till then he's just been flippant and rude and ignoring him. But this kind of makes him angry. And he gets even angrier when Jacoby says, you know, did you cry? But when he says, did she laugh at you? It's just, that kind of shakes him. It stops him. And he begins to open up. And Bobby says Laura wanted to die because Jacoby's asking about how he feels about the fact that she died. And he says, how do, how do you know this? And Bobby says, she told me. This is a real breakthrough for Bobby, but it's also a breakthrough for the show. It really feels like suddenly we're getting a closer look at Laura than we ever had before. And that sense carries over into the next scenes where we go into the woods and go to the log lady's cabin and go to Jacques' cabin. This may be the first moment on the show where we're really getting a sense of characters driven by dark forces and deep hurt. Jacoby's funeral scene complicated him, and Audrey had an interesting mix of confidence and vulnerability. But for the most part, characters have been colorful, but somewhat one-dimensional, I would say. They're sort of drawn broadly. They have certain defining traits, and, and you know we love that about them. But here we're seeing a little bit more. The emotions are strong uh, and a little more subtle than they've been before now that said i do have to admit bobby's crying to me when he actually does break down and cry does read tickets kind of over the over the top i always thought of it as sort of a a uh, almost edging into parody but i don't know if it was really intended that way that's just kind of he's he's kind of a funny crier for better or worse for the relationships to uh, james and donna we might as well combine them at this point in the laura subplots because really they're spending all their time together and whenever they talk about laura and how they miss her it's in terms of like both of them as like a team almost. In the previous episode, they talked about solving her mystery, but it was very much from like a we need to do this for us point of view. And now they're stressing the idea that they should solve it for her sake. They gather at a gazebo and they're talking about how, you know, they're they're haunted by her spirit. And uh, it, it can seem a little bit redundant because this is very similar to the scene we saw with them out in the woods with the owl overhead in the previous episode. But I think it's here to show that this is also about Lara, not just about them. Later on, James and Donna meet with Maddie at the diner. And uh, she comes in, she says, you know, she only knows her aunt and uncle in this town. So it's great to go out and meet other people thinking maybe this is going to be a nice social occasion. But they've got their own purposes. James and Donna always kind of have their own agenda that uh, everybody who comes into contact with them, it seems like it's sort of made subservient to that in some way or another. So Donna says to Maddie, we knew her best. Laura was in some kind of terrible trouble when she died, worse than any of us could imagine. So what we're really getting in this episode is the sense of this relationship that Laura had with both of them being very unsettled. And if anything, even though they keep insisting we knew her best, we loved her most, there's like a little bit of doubt, like, did we really know her? That keeps kind of coming to the fore. For Lauren Renette, Renette is obviously involved a lot with the Flesh World scheme, but I think it's time to fold this plot in elsewhere because uh, for a long time, the Lauren Renette connection was ambiguous, and now we know what it is, or at least part of it. For the therapy subplot, Jacoby talks to Bobby about Laura's death wish, as we mentioned, and he has this whole uh, sequence where he says, did you sometimes get the feeling that Laura was harboring some awful secret? Bad enough that she wanted to die because of it? bad enough that it drove her to consciously try to find other people's weaknesses and prey on them, tempt them, break them down, make them do terrible, degrading things. Laura wanted to corrupt people, because that's how she felt about herself. Is that what happened to you, Bobby? Is that what Laura did to you? 
And this really seems to come out of what, not so much what Bobby said so far as what Jacoby's impression of Laura was from their sessions together. So we're getting a real glimpse, I think, into what he garnered. I don't think he ever, I can't imagine him taking this kind of a hard approach with her based on what he said so far, but uh, I think he soaked up this impression of her over time, got to care about her, now she's gone, and this, it all kind of comes out in this torrent. And Bobby, by the way, affirms everything Jacoby said, so they're kind of on the same place, uh, same page there. Also, as part of the therapy subplot, we have uh, when Maddie's meeting with Donna and James, they ask her to help them find a hiding spot. At this point, we don't know what that hiding spot is. They don't know either, but we know by the end of the episode that it has to do with Jacoby because when Maddie goes downstairs late at night in her pajamas, carrying this little shoebox full of tapes, she calls Donna up and she says uh, that she's she's found some tapes and we get a quick look at the tape. And if you look at it, the label says, To Dr. Jacoby with love, Laura. And of course, we've also seen, uh, you know, before heard before that Jacoby has tapes from her. So it's kind of a logical leap. So that seems to be at this moment where their little investigation is going towards Jacoby. If Audrey is curious about Horn's department store and One-Eyed Jack and uh, Cooper and the rest of the sheriff's gang are on the Jacques trail and to a lesser extent, the Leo one and trying to link up his dream clues with this crime scene, then these three characters, Laura's friends and family, they're looking at her inner life. They're looking at, at this point, Jacoby. As Maddie gets up, we settle for a moment on Laura's portrait behind her, and that may be the only image of Laura all episode, which is very unusual. First time that we've spent that little time with her, although the previous episode hinted at that as well. For the addiction and drug dealing, again, this is these are subplots that, for this moment at least, we should combine. We have Bobby telling Jacoby about Laura making him deal drugs so that she could have them. So we're seeing this interconnection between these two separate aspects of her drug issue, the dealing and the addiction. They kind of were deeply interrelated. For the charity subplot, we still don't have much. We haven't had in a while much dealing with that. But Jacoby, when he's talking with Bobby, uh, Bobby does tell him that Laura wanted to do good. And that seems to sort of link up with her meals on wheels and her tutoring people and caring for them. But she kept getting sucked back down into a darkness. For the sex work subplot, I'm going to move both the uh, Jacques and Renette uh, relationships to Laura into this area because right now this is what we know about their relationship to her that it was through this kind of sex industry this mix of like solicitation and sex talk and prostitution and pornography and whatever's going on in this kind of underworld that flesh world offers a glimpse into so cooper harry andy and doc all find flesh world at the at the uh, place as we as we already talked about and coop is like delighted by this magazine it's the first time we've seen him so cheerfully childlike in his enthusiasm in this whole episode he's been you know in a bad mood all morning because the icelanders kept him up but now it's like oh flesh world also interestingly the magazine is in color now it was in black and white in the pilot. And this, to me, is just one more little element of where the pilot is a little more drab and down-to-earth and kind of grungy and real-world-ish, whereas the series so far is much more colorful, and uh, literally colorful in this case. So Cooper identifies Laura in Flesh World based on the, the, you know, the red curtains, as we mentioned. And there's a great little setup for that where, as we sort of, tilt down toward the cabin with the red curtains 
We see men with painted stomachs. It's obviously a personal snapshot. Somebody on the crew was like, hey, you want this photo? It's kind of a weird photo for the sleazy Jacques apartment. And there's like a postcard of a sex shop and all this. So they had a lot of fun, the production designer and the, the crew designing this uh, space. You know, probably Bob was there too, dressing the set since that was his actual job. And then in the therapy scene, when Jacoby's talking with Bobby, uh, this touches on so many different Laura subplots. We keep bringing it up. And in this case, the implications of him saying terrible, degrading things, there's definitely a sexual aspect to that, especially with what we know about her work. For Laura and Leo, we have the truck in the Flesh World magazine, uh, you know, linking them together. But for the most part, the focus is shifting to Jacques. After the past few episodes where they were really pushing Leo as uh, a kind of a big bad, now we're seeing more how Jacques may relate. But of course, we know that, you know, Leo is connected to this too. So is it is it the two of them? For the moment, Jacques is the, is the uh, emphasis. There's also a scene where Andy shows up at Shelley's house looking for Leo because now the bloody shirt has led them to him. So now actually... The connection between Laura and Leo that's being foregrounded is, I want to say, slightly artificial, but not exactly, because he was really friends with Jacques. The blood on the shirt might be from Laura, we don't know, uh, but certainly the fact that they know about it is due to Shelley and Bobby interfering. For the Laura stories introduced in episode one, for her spirituality, you can tie in the red curtains that are in Flesh World and the cabin photos with the red room dream. So if whether it's Laura's spirit or Cooper's own subconscious or something ethereal trying to sort of communicate her her inner life and her experience, her outer life too, maybe those red curtains made their way into this dream from her traumatic night at this cabin. For the employment subplot, uh, this is a little tricky. I introduced it last time as Audrey at Horns and said it was a new subplot. But when I think about it, no, it's 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 about Laura. It's about her employment. And it goes all the way back to episode one where we find out Renette worked at the perfume counter. And in episode three, we get a link between Laura and the perfume counter. And uh, then the next episode sets it in motion. So here we are with the employment subplot. Emery interviews Audrey and uh, he's an old family. You know, he's been working at this department store however long. He said, oh, I remember you when you were a little girl and this and that. Why don't we start low and aim high and put you in the wrapping department part-time after school? And she's not having it. She walks over behind the desk, grabs his tie, and basically threatens to accuse him of sexual assault if he doesn't get her a job at the perfume counter. Says, tell my dad that I'm wrapping presents, but I'm going to work at the perfume counter. She's being kind of forthright about uh, what she wants and the fact that she's being surreptitious about it. You know, she's got a, her own agenda. And, of course, we see his mind working, you know, if there's a link between Perfume Counter and One-Eyed Jacks, as Ben suggested, he does not want the boss's daughter working there. So he's a little nervous, but he knows when he's bested, and he just says, yes, and she says, yes, what? Yes, Ms. Horn. <laughs> so it's a great little scene there. Uh, showing her pretty ruthless side, but uh, we suspect maybe this guy deserves it. There's nothing for the one-armed man subplot uh, this this episode. And uh, this is the third episode of Nothing for the Mystery Man subplot and the second episode of Nothing for the Laura and Ben subplots. For the Laura stories introduced in the previous episode, we have the connection to Maddie. Maddie talks about how she knew Laura, the fact that they were kind of psychologically close in some way yet she didn't actually spend all that much time with her or, or know her necessarily that well and uh 
this at this point, I think, you know, it's becoming clear that Maddie is not just an opportunity for Cheryl Lee to play another character, but for the show to give us sort of a glimpse into Laura through this indirect, almost paradoxical way, because she seems so different from Laura, from what we know of her. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Thanks for listening, and tomorrow we'll be back with more scenes by the uh, organized by the non-Laura subplots in that case. See you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>